You're listening to the 66 Podcast, and today we are in Daniel chapter 6. Thanks for joining us today. We've come through a pretty good amount of ground so far in the book of Daniel. Uh, A lot of eventful stuff has happened so far in our study. We've gotten into a lot of history, actually, in our study of this uh, major prophet in the Old Testament. And today we're going to get into a very familiar story in chapter 6. Um, and Drew, I think after this chapter today, the next few episodes are going to be pretty hard uh, uh, yeah. to organize, right? Maybe not to organize, but to understand. I mean, this is the last part of Daniel that people know. Yeah. And it's almost like we're going into a new book next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's kind of funny how it works, and it must have been intentional, but the first six chapters are pretty easy to understand, narrative-based, good stories that, that we've, those of us who have been in church all our lives, we've heard since we were children in our Bible classes. Mm-hmm. And chapter 7 just totally turns things on its head, and we're in visions and symbols and dreams that are very difficult to understand. But the good news is that this will be new territory for a lot of people, so some of our listeners you know, been hearing what we've been talking about uh, for the last several weeks. They've been hearing that all their lives, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I know what happens. Uh, you know, the Lord stops the mouths of the lions. Um, but I think they're going to be very interested in what comes next. Yeah. But I probably should quit talking down this episode. I mean, this is going to be a good one. Oh, yeah, this is, the, this is the story everybody knows, Daniel in the lion's den. There's a lot of really good application out of the story, especially yeah. that we'll make. Uh, if this is the first time you're listening to us, uh, we'll come back in the last 15 or 20 minutes or so of the podcast and talk about some application that we get out of this chapter. Uh, but to begin with, Drew's going to give us an outline of the chapter, and then we'll take a quick break and come back and we'll dig deep into some history or maybe some uh, things involved with the language or uh, anything like that. We'll dig. We'll kind of. I drew, I think, as you said before, nerd out in the second <laughs> section. Yeah. Uh, really interesting stuff to some people, incredibly boring to other people. No. <laughs> Let Not, them make that decision themselves. I think that they really will be exciting on the edge for of their seats. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, the way we're going to outline this is simply point out the ways that Daniel stood out from the rest of his peers and, and for from the whole Persian kingdom, for that matter. It's kind of a study in contrasts, and it shows that faithful people stand out. And um, there is a little practical point to be made just on the outline itself. Uh, We struggle as Christians with the idea that we're outsiders, but that's what God has called us to do, uh, to be separate, to come out from among the world and be separate, as Paul says. And this is definitely what Daniel is doing in this chapter, We've seen him do this before, but I think it's even clearer in Daniel chapter 6. So there are three things that stood out in his life. And the first one, as we begin reading in Daniel chapter 6, the first one is his integrity. I want to start reading with verse 1, which says that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I don't have to comment much there for you to understand how he was standing out. Um, Our audience may be wondering what a satrap was. Um, That is the kind of has to do with the Division of the territory. It was divided into satrapies. Kind of like a governor, right? Or something yeah, like that. Yeah, kind of like a governor. It's a Persian word for kingdom protectors, governors, rulers, whatever. And uh, so it had to do with the way the kingdom was divided up. Herodotus, a Greek historian, said that the land of the Medes and Persians was divided into 20 satrapies, and uh, that Daniel lived in District 9, which was the Babylon Assyria district. Um, large enough to require 120 satraps. So I think it's just talking about this District 9 
And uh, there were 120 governors for this huge district that encompassed Babylon and Assyria. And Darius had three presidents over the 120, and Daniel was one of them. And because of this excellent spirit, the plan was to move him up to the top of this whole pyramid structure, which explains what happens next. Uh, so the others get jealous, and we've seen this before in other stories in Daniel, and they conspire to remove Daniel from his position. I'm picking up with verse 4. The presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. I just remember that last episode we decided to call him Darius. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying Darius. <laughs> so Whatever you want. We think it should be D- Darius, but I'm probably going to say Darius the whole time. So you have their plan there. And you understand it's out of jealousy, and um, there's a severe penalty here. Uh, the the lion's den that I hope we have some time to talk about in the second section of the podcast. We'll just point it out that it's a terrible death for right now. Um, now, I think this was a lie that they told, that all the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, proposed this. Um you know, Daniel was one of them, and he didn't. He wasn't a part of this proposition. And uh, there were 120 just in the land of Babylon alone, and I doubt they conferred with all 120 of them. So they're conspiring and lying, and Daniel has this integrity. He has the right attitude. Verse 3, an excellent spirit was in him. He was faithful in his work. I like verse 4 where it says they could find no ground or complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And personally, he was pure. Verse 4 says, no error or fault was found in him. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can say that about too many men um, or women. You know, this made him stand out. He was not just a good Jewish person, you know, not just a religious person, but in whatever he did, he did it with excellence and integrity, which I think we should expect of ourselves as Christians. Now, the second thing that's going to make him stand out in verses 10 through 17, is his consistency. Uh, Look at verses 10 and 11. After they made this this injunction that you can pray only to the king, uh, Daniel knew this had been signed, and he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So you see the consistency despite the opposition. Verse 11 says, These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So uh, he just continued doing uh, what what he always did. And these men saw it as he knew they would see it. They brought the report to Darius, who was, according to verse 14, distressed at the disobedience. He wanted to do something about it, but the officials reminded him, if you look at verse 15, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Our listeners that remember our podcast on Esther uh, remember this cultural thing about the Medes and Persians. We talked about it a lot when we talked about Esther because it was a major plot point in Esther, and it's a major plot point here. In both cases, Esther and Daniel, the king, he didn't want to kill the people that were to be killed according to the injunction that he made, but even though it was he who made the injunction, according to the Medes and Persians, you can't revoke it, which is a one of the dumbest things. Right, 
regarding policy and legislation that I've ever heard of. Yeah, which makes it really easy to be manipulated, and that's what happens to these guys. And these emperors, these kings, or whatever you want to call them, they're they're smart men, you know. Yeah, they're well, they're, and in some regards, they must be. But yeah, they've got to be. You know, they're either master tacticians or uh, they're crafty, they're shrewd, or whatever. So they're not, you know, just going to be blindly fooled by something. So I think you're right. It's just interesting that a, you know, a nation that had, you know, there was so much knowledge in the nation with these people. Obviously, it was, it's a great thing that later on uh, Cyrus is going to come, or he could even be reigning right now. Uh, I guess we'll get to that in the next section. But you know, he's they're they're smart enough to have a policy of you know let people live out their own culture, their own religion. Um, and lots of other things that brought them to world power, but like you said, this law here. Oh, of it's when you make a law yeah. that can't be changed. This is crazy, and know. and verse sixteen, you can kind of hear the pain in Darius's heart. He knows he's doing the wrong thing. Daniel is the only person who's done the right thing, and he knows he's putting him in the lion's den for something he did right, not something he did wrong. And he's saying in verse sixteen, "May your God, whom you serve continually." deliver you. So there's a consistency again. He serves him continually, and it got him the lion's den. But the story's not over yet. We come to the third thing that caused Daniel to stand out from the rest, and that was deliverance. Um, Darius had a sleepless night, according to verse 18. Um, But the next morning, he rushed to the lion's den, and he finds Daniel in good shape. Uh, Verse 19 says, At the break of day, The king arose, and he went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. This, again, is where Daniel puts us to shame with his respect that he's showing to people who are trying to kill him. Right. Uh, Even though he threw me in the den of lions, may you live forever. Uh, He says, My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And uh, so he's in good shape despite that. Now, what happens next is kind of gruesome. Daniel's accusers suffered the fate that was planned for him. Again, another tie-in with Esther, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because both Daniel and Esther are set in the Persian kingdom. Right. And the events that happen in both of those books happen under Persian culture. Can I ask you, and this might not be a good question, just quiz you on off the top of your head, but how far removed are we from Cyrus down to Artaxerxes? In, okay, if that is you know, uh, it's pretty good, pretty good time frame, right? Because we have um, we have a couple, we a have couple Cyrus in between, and then we have I, the man, king I of Esther is Xerxes, it's not Artaxerxes. Okay. I had this committed to memory when we did Esther, but that was so long ago. Yeah, there, we'll come there back so in many section that aren't, and let you know. Yeah, there's so many that aren't really important in the Bible, and so they're in that in that. I know time. Darius, or excuse me, Darius the Great. He's in between Cyrus and, or is he before Cyrus? I don't know. You told me uh-huh. we were going to do this next. In we're the next showing segment. our ignorance here. We'll come back to the second section. <laughs> you after. didn't tell me you were going to do this. That's why I said it's bad to quiz you. We'll cut oh, all this out. Oh man! Post production. This it's will be ruined. Gone. Yep. Well, it's been great, folks. <laughs> uh, Catch us next week. We had Talk a good about. run. No, um, I wanted to say. Andrew. Before I interrupted, that, sorry. I mean, we got to the goriest part of the story, and you start bringing dry historical information into this. That's my job. Daniel's accusers, as I was saying, were thrown into the lion's den, and their wives and children. Um, if we have time, I want to come back to that. Because okay. there's some archaeological stuff that was dug up about Darius doing this at other times. Oh, good. So I can't... That sounds pleasant. Yeah, I, I just can't imagine the, that kind of cruelty. But yeah. um, anyway, uh, it ends like most chapters of 
dumb kings in Daniel's lifetime ends with the king admitting that he was wrong and God was right. So we have this theme of the sovereignty of God repeated again in Daniel chapter 6. If you look at verse 26, uh, He is the living God. These are the words of Darius, the me. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. So God delivered Daniel. The three things there that stand out, his integrity, his consistency, and his deliverance. Let's uh, dig into some of this stuff at our own risk. Um, we're smart, I promise you, we are smarter now than we were just a few seconds ago. Right. Because we, <laughs> we actually looked something up. Yeah. A question that our listeners may not have, but a lot of people have, is who was Darius the Mede? Um, and that is a, a tough question for some people because... There was a fairly well-known Persian ruler named Darius the Great. And you want, if you're a student of history, of this time period of history, your brain is going to want to make this Darius the Great. The problem with that is that Darius the Great did not start ruling until 522 B.C. After Cyrus. After Cyrus, right. And we're reading about events that have occurred around the time of 538, because in chapter 5, verse 31, we read that Darius the Mede received the kingdom, that is, it was transferred from the Babylonians over to him when he was about 62 years old. That means, you know, around 538, this Darius was 62 and he received the kingdom which means he was born, you know, around 600 B.C. It's impossible for this to be the same guy as Darius the Great. And we know that in 538, Cyrus was ruling. So that word, and I know we're probably, uh, check me here if I'm getting too far ahead, but at the end of chapter 5, we see that Darius the Mede received the kingdom. That word received is interesting. Uh, What a lot of the scholars seem to think that word implies is that Cyrus is the uh, I guess the king overall maybe you could call him the emperor here uh, and he appoints or he hands over rule of this area to Darius so that's why or Darius that's why Darius receives it Cyrus is right. the big head honcho in charge in 538 he starts reigning actually in 539 uh, so he's been reigning or he's uh, I guess these are rough estimates. But either way, at the time, Cyrus is the main man, and um, this guy Darius the Mede, Darius the Mede, is under Cyrus, and then all the satraps and presidents that are under Darius are obviously uh, under Cyrus as well. Because like you said, Darius the Great, uh, known to historians, he doesn't come around until 522. He's third in succession. There's Cyrus, and there's somebody else, then there's Darius the Great. Yeah. Uh, and this word received is never used of a king who conquered a place. They had different language, which is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. But the, the, the final thing that makes it really plain is the last verse of this chapter. In Daniel 6.28, we read that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian led together. Right. Cyrus the Great was at the very top. But this is such a large empire, like Andrew said, uh, he had turned Babylon slash Assyria over to Darius the Mede uh, to handle it for him. Because yep. he couldn't possibly handle this whole empire alone. Especially if there are nine, or how many districts did you say there were? Twenty? Uh, twenty according to Herodotus. So if Herodotus is right, there's twenty districts that are probably, we can assume, roughly the same size as this one. And if this is just mm-hmm. one district here that has 120 satraps running it, and there's yeah. twenty of those, 
it makes a little you know it makes a little more sense maybe for Cyrus at the top having to appoint men over every single uh, uh, province or whatever you want to call yeah. them that he had all these territories and one other yeah. thing I think that's interesting to note on here you mentioned that it says Daniel prospered from the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus um, that Daniel makes it through the entire captivity yeah Daniel is yeah, there. Daniel's age is another factor in who was this Darius. But yeah, this is yeah. this is old man Daniel. It's interesting to me that Daniel, you know, when you follow the line of Old Testament history, which we're getting pretty close to the end of here uh, at this point, yeah. Daniel comes from, you know, the tail end of the time of Jeremiah when they're brought out of Jerusalem into captivity. He is there. He is one of the young men taken out of their homeland and he survives the entire captivity under Babylon he deals with Nebuchadnezzar he deals with the kings after Nebuchadnezzar and then he deals with Belshazzar as we saw last week and now he's seeing this new rule and you know I don't want to get too much into apply but it's interesting how some of the same stuff that happened with the new Babylonian rule is kind of repeating itself here when another empire gets in charge of the whole show you know we have another yeah you see this rise and fall of one kingdom after another which plays into the theme of god's sovereignty daniel's kind of symbol symbolic of god himself Mm -hmm. he's the constant you know you got a babylonian kingdom you got daniel who's the only person who really knows what's going on you have a persian kingdom Still, it's Daniel. He's the only one that knows what's going on. Right. And Daniel has always been there, but the kings keep changing. So yeah. it kind of shows you what's really going on, uh, ultimately, with regard to God and the kingdoms of this world. Um, let's let's talk about the the gory part of this. All right. Uh, so the lion's den. What's that all about? I we're so used to hearing this story that I doubt many people pause to ask. Is a lion's den the easiest way to get rid of criminals? I mean, is that if if you believe in the death penalty? And there's still some people in this country that do. And back then, it was a very popular thing. Uh, if you believe in the death penalty, how do you get from that to a lion's den? Because there are all kinds of problems involved in that mm-hmm. I would think you know you have to keep up with the lions you gotta you gotta capture you gotta the catch lions. the lions yeah. you gotta catch I would the like lions. to I mean I want to see a chapter about how they caught lions yeah I, I wish we could dig something up people on that have lions maybe they should they didn't have tranquilizer darts the bible series they should have done a whole episode yeah I would have watched they, I'd watch that yeah unless I knew that it wasn't going to work out too well how many people died catching the lions? You have to build the habitat. It sounds... I mean, it's always depicted as some underground dungeon. Can lions really live? Or do they have something kind of like at the zoo where you have the outdoor exhibit area and then the door that goes into the area nobody can watch? Uh, now, I do want to ask you this. Uh, you know, recently we had... Well, here at Asheville Road, where Drew and I uh, both work, we recently did a class series on... Um, outsiders, people who were kind of, like we said, Daniel, you know, he's kind of on the outside of these kingdoms. But long story short, we were talking about Daniel in the lion's den, and I think we brought up some interesting stuff about, or Drew, you brought up some interesting stuff in your class about the den itself, Um, maybe not being just this pit that you throw people into, um, but I think there's there's a phrase here uh, talking about the 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 accusers and their families in verse 24 before they reached the bottom the lions overpowered them yeah broke them into pieces and i think i've heard and i'm not sure if it was in that class or if i've read it earlier in prep for this but we're uh it could be that these you know dungeon kind of areas were actually you know there's stairs kind of winding down to the bottom mm-hmm. and there's this pit at the bottom so what's i mean do we have any archaeological stuff on what these dens would have actually been like so when we read this we can picture in our head what what daniel's Um, having to spend the night in there there may be i mean here here's where i was going to go with it uh that is an interesting detail that there there was a bottom of the den um 
and that may have just been to protect people from the lions. Um, so you could open the door essentially without having to worry about. I can't imagine this this staircase that you are thinking about because if I were in the lion's den, I think I would just you know climb the stairs. Maybe the lions could climb the stairs too. I don't know. Yeah. But I do. I, here's the direction I wanted to take this in, and we talked about this in other books which involved the Persian Empire. Uh, the Persians had a religion called Zoroastrianism. And uh, it was a monotheistic religion, um, sort of. Sometimes it kind of morphed into a dualistic religion, whatever. But they were very ritualistic. They believed in the sacredness of... There's four things, four elements. Fire, water, air, and soil, or the earth. And then... They also believe that the most contaminating thing in existence is a dead body. So, think about it. If you are a person who believes all of that, how are you going to dispose of a dead body, let alone execute somebody? You know, the, the Babylonians had the fiery furnace. Mm-hmm. The Persians aren't going to use a fiery furnace because... Fire is sacred, and you don't want to bring a, a dead body into contact with fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to drown anybody. The water is sacred. Um, you don't want to bury anybody. Uh, so even if you can kill them, how do you dispose of them? That's where the lions come in. And this is really gruesome to think about, but with the lions, they could keep their crazy religious ideas, execute criminals, and dispose of their bodies without bringing them into contact with soil, air, water, or fire. Yeah. Just let the lions digest them. That mm-hmm. That's the awful truth behind the religion that Darius and the others believed in. Um, so I'll just mention this in passing because it does have a tie-in to Christian faith. This is where crucifixion came from. Uh, you remember the gallows of the Book of Esther? It was probably a pole to impale bodies on. Yeah, not and, a not a hanging time. Yeah, we think of a hanging situation, but yeah. but it was probably something to impale, which is an awful death in and of itself. It's the precursor to crucifixion. The Persians may have been the ones who invented crucifixion, but they did it for ritualistic purposes. They didn't want a dead body to come into contact with the soil. And so they, uh, and I know somebody's going to be listening and say, what about the air? I don't know. I, you know. I don't know how they solved all these problems. But We're not um, Zoroastrian apologists here. No. <laughs> I'm trying to make it sound as absurd as possible, to no. be honest with you. Uh, but that's why they crucified. The Romans adapted it to show their power. You know, they, they didn't have these religious beliefs. They just wanted everybody to fear them. Mm-hmm. And so they would make it public display of their executions make it as torturous as possible so that nobody would go against them or rebel against the empire and despite their best efforts it didn't work um i think it's interesting here also to notice just how brutal the persian rulers were because not only did he have the the accusers themselves killed but he, he puts their you know innocent parties in there as well their wives and their children yeah. So I think it's interesting to note here, you know, the on top of, you know, we've already mentioned uh, the brutal forms of death, but even on top of that, you know, they're they're also getting rid of these innocent people and the wives right. and kids. It's it's awful and there is uh there as I hinted in the last segment, uh history tells us that this wasn't the only time this happened. I'm going to read an excerpt from Herodotus about not this Darius, but Darius the Great, the guy that we've been saying is not this guy. So I'm going to completely confuse you now and go to Darius the Great. But I just want to show you the same kind of execution was uh, possible in other cases. It involves a guy who actually helped Darius, um, helped him get the throne in Persia. He sentenced this guy whose name was Intophrenes, his wife and the rest of his family to death. When Intophrenes' wife came to the king begging for her life. 
So this is how this document from Herodotus, a Greek historian, who tried to make the Persians look as bad as possible because of other events that we won't get into. Yep. But um, this is his version of it, so you know, it's probably biased. But he says that the wife of Antophanes, coming constantly to the doors of the king's court, wept and bewailed herself. And by doing this continually after the same manner, she moved Darius to pity her. Accordingly, he sent a messenger and said to her, Woman, King Darius grants to thee to save from death one of thy kinsmen who are lying in bonds, whomsoever thou desirest of them all. She then, having considered with herself, answered thus, if in truth the king grants me the life of one, I choose of them all my brother. Darius, being informed of this and marveling at her speech, sent and addressed her thus, Woman, the king asked thee what was in thy mind, and thou didst leave thy husband and thy children to die, and didst choose thy brother to survive, seeing that he is surely less near to thee in blood than thy children, and less dear to thee than thy husband. She made answer, O king, I might, if heaven willed, have another husband and other children, if I should lose these, but another brother I could by no means have, seeing that my father and my mother are no longer alive. This was in my mind when I said those words. To Darius then it seemed that the woman had spoken well, and he let go not only him whose life she had asked, but also the eldest of her sons. How nice was this? Oh, the man. eldest son, because he was pleased with her, but all the others he slew. What a nice guy. That's a great little fairy tale. I mean, okay, everybody is messed up in this story. Yeah. So you got Antophanes. He's messed up for helping this sadistic freak get yeah. to the throne. And then you've got his wife who goes in to beg for the mercy of her brother, saying, I'm picking my brother because... I can I have can, another. I can, <laughs> I can get another husband, oh, and I can have goodness. more children, but I can't get another brother... My mom and dad are dead. And then, and then the Darius goes, like, oh, yeah. you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to free <laughs> your oldest son. So you will hear the screams now only of your other children and your husband. Um, when is Wow. When does Disney release the adaptation of this story? Oh, man. What, what's the title for this? There, I don't know. Not the Huntsman. My brother. Just the, call the it brother. The brother. I don't know. I'm sure ticket sales will be very good. The, the cold-hearted wife. Yeah, that sounds good. I can get... Well, I wonder if that news got back to her husband right before he was eaten by a lion or whatever they <laughs> were doing. wife chose to save your brother-in-law rather than save you. Before we impale you on the stick, you should know that uh, your brother-in-law <laughs> got free. Yeah. Your brother-in-law. So anyway... I wanted to share that. There's a cheery thought here in our in the podcast today. Yeah, very lighthearted. Uh, we're out of things to say, so we're going to go get more things to say and come back in just a few minutes. So as we close out the podcast today, we want to apply some of the things from Daniel's story of being thrown in the lion's den. And the first one I want to mention is pretty obvious. It's Daniel's integrity. And we mentioned a little bit of that in the first section, Drew, uh, according to your outline of the chapter. But one thing that I found really interesting is in verse 4, where all these officials and satraps are getting together, and they're trying to find some reason to complain against Daniel just because they don't like him. Uh, maybe because he's the favorite, I don't know. But they're trying to find some reason to to find a complaint or a fault in him, but they could not find any error or any fault in him. And so their plan is this. We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Wouldn't it be awesome if that's how our enemies thought about us. You know, yeah. if we were going to say, well, okay, well, you know, so-and-so says they're a Christian and they follow this God, well, we can discredit this guy pretty easily. All we got to do is dig up something that he's done in the past 
or point out something that he's doing wrong right now. Yeah, and, it's on you know all the TV shows about political intrigue and stuff. You know, some guy in politics will say, "Start digging, you'll find something." It's always a given that somebody has skeletons in their closet. Yeah, that I meant to say, everybody has skeletons in their closet. That's a given in today's world. But I, you know, these guys are basically saying Daniel's closet is swept and clean, and yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, he was. I mean, he's. You think of that phrase "above reproach." Yeah, you know, when you get to the New Testament and how um, even I think one of the qualifications of deacons is that they, you know, must be blameless. Be, yeah, be yeah. blameless. That's Daniel. I mean, he's people cannot find any error and fault in him in the way he lives. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that he's not sinless, because we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But how great of a thing would it be if we were, you know, if we could emulate Daniel in our spiritual walk to where when people are trying to find something wrong with us, to do so would just be to find something wrong with the God we serve. Yeah. You know, it'd be great. If people could say, you know, so-and-so, their fault is, you know, they believe in this old document to follow their lives. Or you can't ever get them to come over on a Sunday because they're always at church on Sunday. You know, that's kind of a simple version of this. but Yeah, just something to where, you know, we're, we're living our faith enough to where number one we can be found in this kind of blameless state and then number two to where if people want to make some kind of accusation against us they're basically are being put in the position to where they're making an accusation against god so that means we model our actions we model our attitudes and we model our opinions after god's and where do we get that well we get it from his word so we only get that kind of lifestyle from living in his word living in him uh the next thing is uh the influence that that life had daniel you know he was in he was in the court of kings uh for the entire time he was in captivity or from the stories that we've read here he's been involved in some pretty important people's lives uh really uh having a big influence on history and he didn't do that because he was some you know, he had some incredible talent or ability or or looks or this and that and the other. He did it just because of that kind of blameless life we're talking about. He was he was a godly man. God chose him uh, to reveal the dreams to that the kings had, um, and he gets because of that he gets put in a prominent position. And then when we get here to Daniel, not only has Daniel made an influence in the life of the king of Babylon. But now he's going to make an influence in the life of this king over this particular uh, province, this particular area yeah. of Persia. So it's just the impact. One person living their life in the right way can have an impact on so many different people. Uh, even if you just, throughout your life, living a Christian life, you impact one person, well, then all the people that that one person impacts you know, come back mm-hmm. to you. It's like yeah. those commercials, you know, where the guy helps so and so, and then he walk when he walks out of the building, helps yeah. the door, holds the door open. So we can, I think, a lot of times our influence is more powerful than we realize. Yeah, and so I, our, I saw a figure one time. Don't know if it's scientifically accurate, but um, even the most introverted of people influences ten thousand others over the course of his lifetime. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. One I don't bit. know. You know, it sounds like one of those motivational speaker things. Yeah, I read that somewhere, and it stuck Preacher with me. Stat. Even if it's not statistically accurate, it's true though that you influence more people than than you think you do. Oh, certainly. Yeah, and you influence them by just little tiny things that you don't even realize you're doing. Yeah, you know. So I think little decisions that we make that oftentimes we can compromise and say, "Oh, well, this isn't that big a deal." Well, there's, there's usually someone watching, and it's going to make an influence one way. It's going to either be good or it's going to be bad. Right. Well, uh, before we finish, I think we should take away some pointers on prayer. Prayer is always a very difficult subject for Christians. Even the most faithful of Christians struggles with his or her prayer life from time to time. And 
see Daniel here, he seems to be pretty good at it, if, if you can describe it that way. Um, three things I noticed, and maybe, Andrew, you can add to this, but the three things that I noticed is, number one, when he prayed, he assumed a particular posture. I mean, verse 10, it seems to be something that he did every time he prayed. He, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber they were open towards Jerusalem, and he prayed on his knees, and he did it three times a day. And that seems to be a habit that he formed physically, that there, were, there was a posture that he assumed that helped him keep this habit going. I think there's something to learn from that, because a lot of us who struggle with prayer, we're just, you know, we get to the end of the day and we think, oh, I didn't pray today. Well, you probably didn't pray today because you didn't plan it, or you don't have a habit and it's okay to make it a habit to yeah. say at this time and at this time and at this time, I'm going to go to this particular place. I'm going to get in this particular posture. I'm going to bow my head or I'm going to sit at my desk or I'm going to get next to the bed or I'm going to get on my knees like Daniel and I'm going to mm-hmm. pray. I think that's one of the reasons that Daniel was constantly in prayer is because he had he had it all planned out. He, he figured out a way to do it. Yeah. And... That's why we fail all the time, because we always say, well, I need to do better, but we don't plan a routine. Right. I'm really glad you brought that up, because, you know, it's it's got to be intentional on the front end. I don't think it's like Daniel just woke up, and all of a sudden he felt like he was just hit and overwhelmed. like, oh, i got to pray now. And every day he just happened to be hit three times a day. Right. You no, know, and especially yeah. now we get really distracted because we've got every we have the entire world at our fingertips. Yeah. Uh, through technology, through the internet, and so it's very easy for us to get distracted. And I think you're right. I think the solution, because everybody says, you know, I want to read more and I want to pray more. I need to read my Bible more and I want to pray more. But they, you know, you never make a plan. And if you never sit down and make the intentional plan, I love what you're saying about. You know, have a particular place that you go to, maybe a particular posture, whatever it is, to set up a plan and to be very intentional and to make it a, you know, a a habit that's yeah. not going to be compromised. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, some will get hung up on, well, am I supposed to pray on my knees? No, that's not the lesson here. The lesson here is that Daniel prayed on his knees because that helped him do prayer. Right. And so, you know, the, it's not about specifically how he was sitting. It's the fact that he was sitting in a particular way every time he went to God in prayer. So you can sit in a chair. You can lie in your bed. You can fall mm-hmm. on your face. You can stand. You can, you know, assume whatever works for you. Right. Um it was something that helped him focus. I got one okay. more little quick thing to add yeah, to this before yeah. we move on. I think a good example is a poor prayer posture for a lot of people is wow. going to be laying on your bed yeah. at night before you go to sleep. <laughs> After lights out. Because yeah. how many times do you get to the end of that prayer? I'll tell you, probably zero. Yeah. Unless there's something really bad going on and you're very stressed and you can't sleep. But, you know, I think... What you, what and that goes to your point of it's not about actually what your you know do my knees have to be bent at a forty five degree angle for my prayer to be heard? Yeah. It's more of a what posture can help you focus and actually do what you're intending to do in prayer. Exactly. Yeah. Let's go. Let's get another little practical tip here. Uh, it's obvious that his prayer life was regular. It assumed a particular posture. And number two, it was regular. Look at verse ten. Uh, the phrase, as he had done previously. And then in verse 16, Darius notes that Daniel served his God continually. So, you know, there there are, we all know that we're guilty of throwing out the occasional panic prayer. You know, where we just, um, we're praying because we're in a bad way, and that's the only time we pray to God. Or um, we pray for show. You know, when we're around Christians, we know they expect us to pray, so we pray. Yeah. Um, but we, the way we should do it is like Daniel. We have our windows open to Jerusalem constantly. Yeah, we talked about this uh, in the teenage class just uh, Sunday morning. We were talking about prayer. And, 
it's you know it's a form of communication with God, and you think about doing this regularly. You know, if I my wife's out of town tonight, and if I went through all day today, and you know just waited till I saw her tomorrow to have any kind of contact with her, she's probably not gonna be real happy with me. You know, and we don't expect to be able to have a relationship with another person if we talk to them for five minutes before we go to bed two nights a week. Yeah. Or, you know, if we want to spend time with them for an, two hours on a Sunday and one hour on a Wednesday. Um, you know, uh, the fact that he says here, as he had done before or as he had done previously, he's in constant communication with God. And if you expect to have a healthy relationship with a person, you want to communicate with them multiple times a day. Why not the same with God? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, let's let's go to a third one. When you look at what he prayed for, notice it included both thanksgiving and intercession or petition, however you want to put that second part. But in verse 10, and you notice that thanksgiving was mentioned first. Uh, in verse 10 it says that he gave thanks before his God. And then in verse 11, they noted that he had brought his petition and plea to God. So I think instead of intercession, I should have said thanksgiving and petition. Yeah. So a petition is like you know, asking God for something. That's what a petition is. And we're, we're real good at that, especially the petition for forgiveness. Forgive me of my sins. Heal me of my sickness. Save my friend from this particular problem. Help the sick. Help the poor. Help my country. Give me this, give me that, get me out of this trouble. Those are all petitions, and that's what most of our prayers consist of, if we're being honest. Right. But Daniel, we don't know the percentage or if there was one, or if he did this consciously or subconsciously, but I just think it's important to note that first we hear about the thanksgiving, and then the petition and pleas. Right. So he, uh, he thanked God, which means he worshipped God. Gratitude is a form of worship. In fact, it's kind of like fuel for worship. If you read the Psalms, a lot of times uh, saying thank you or thanksgiving is held parallel to praise. In one line, the psalmist will say, I praise you. In the very next line, in the synonymous parallelism, he is thanking God. So being thankful is being a worshipful person, which is what we should do in our prayer life. I was just about to bring that up. Sorry. So there was a, there's a fine line, you know, kind of between uh, being thankful and then praising God. You know, I, I think those two are very they're very closely related. Um, you read Psalm 103, which is really kind of almost a, a you know I don't I hesitate to say like a thesis statement for Psalms because Psalms are so diverse, but the title of Psalms in Hebrew is actually praises. It means praises, the word that's described as the title mm-hmm. um, and you read through there and like you said it's a lost aspect of prayer maybe not lost but it's undervalued I think now in our culture you know I wonder how many prayers we say in the middle of the day just to thank God and just to praise God for how great he is mm-hmm. you know with no no petitions and I'm, obviously I'm not trying to say we never need to make petitions or pleas because we do we do need to there's a scriptural mandate yeah. for that um, certainly, but there's also a a scriptural mandate for simply offering God praise just because you enjoy Him, just because you love Him. You there's know, a selfish motive in this, by the way. Not that you should go to God in prayer with selfish motives, but thanksgiving is a recognition that this actually works. I mean, if you think about it that way, when you thank God, you're saying when I asked you for something in the past, you delivered. And then that's basis on asking for more, petitioning Him more. If you can't be thankful, then what are you praying to God for? I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? I mean, if you, if you never show any gratitude to God, it's almost as if you're saying, well, there's nothing that God has ever done for me before. So then why do you petition Him? Yeah, and the you Psalms. Know, it just yeah it doesn't when, make any sense to have petition with no thanksgiving. Yeah, when well, in the, I'm thinking of in the Psalms, particularly 103, the one I just mentioned, 
where this is where he starts by saying, "Bless the Lord, O my soul, uh, all that is within me, bless His holy name." And he talks about praising God. And then right after that, he gets into the things God has done for the people of Israel. And yeah, so I he think says, "Forget not all His benefits." Right. And then he, he talks um, you know, about that's, Moses. That's Thanksgiving. He talks about uh, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he goes on. And so I think it's a very important part, very important important aspect of prayer, like you said, to praise. And part of that praise is wrapped up in what has he done for you. If you don't believe he's done much for you, and this goes on a different route, so I'm not going to follow this too far. But if you don't believe that he's done much, you're probably not going to praise him a whole lot because you don't have a whole lot of reason to give him the praise. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that about covers it for Daniel chapter 6. Uh, of course, there are always more that can be said, but I'm looking forward to getting into chapter 7 and what follows there. Uh, let's remind everybody that you can contact us in a number of different ways. You can follow us on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter. The handle is The66Podcast. You can look us up online, The66.net. My email is dkaiser at arcoc.com. Andrew's at akingsley at arcoc.com. We love hearing from our listeners. We also ask you to spread the word. If you've got time, go by iTunes and leave us a review. We really appreciate that. Helps us get up in the rankings and helps to get the word out about what we're doing. Uh, Next week, we are going to um, get into some deep waters as we try to pick apart these strange and wonderful visions that Daniel sees. So I hope that you'll join us on that uh, really weird journey that we're going on next time on The 66. 